welcome to Sulphur Community Church. I know we have a lot of new faces here this morning, so I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and introduce myself. My name's uh, Trent Whitley. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and we'll be in Exodus uh, chapter 14, if you want to turn there this morning. And so we'll be, we'll be in Exodus chapter 14 and going through chapter 15. And so uh, we're walking through, as David kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, we're walking through a sermon series right now called The Crushed Head and the Bruised Heel, which is we're trying to walk uh, faithfully through Scripture, through all of Scripture within one year, pointing at the major themes and the major things that are going on within Scripture, major stories uh, that are happening within Scripture. And so uh, that's what, that's what we want to do for the rest of this year, and we hopefully, um, we hopefully can accomplish that within, within this year. And so we have some guides that actually help with, with some of the texts that we're going through. They help us to be able to, uh, David and Joey actually created these guides, and what they do is they, they help us to walk through the text, uh, to ask questions, specific questions about the text that uh, allow us to be able to examine the text more, and then some application questions as to how we can apply these, these particular texts to our lives and, and to the things that are going on. And uh, you can find those guides on our website, sulfurcommunitychurch.com, under the resources tab. And so uh, you can find those there, and those are really helpful resources we've seen so far uh, throughout our community groups and, and just for individual study if you, if you like to do that. Um, and so we're going through... Um, we're going through the book of Exodus right now, and uh, as we come up on Exodus chapter 14, I just kind of want to bring us up to speed uh, as to what's going on. Uh, God has specifically told Moses to go back to Egypt and to get his people and to tell Pharaoh to let his people go so that they can go into the wilderness and worship him. And so Pharaoh, God, at the same time, says that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He tells Moses that. He says, I'm, I'm going to harden his heart to where he will not allow you to be able to go. And so what we see carrying on from there is 10 plagues that God puts on the people of Egypt in order for him to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And so uh, we saw those plagues. Joey walked, Joey walked through those plagues with us last week. Um, and, and those plagues, as we... As we go on, they get more and more severe until it leads to what is called the Passover, where the Lord passed through the land and struck down all of the firstborn of everyone in the land of Egypt, except for those who, who obeyed God's Passover instructions, which were to take an unblemished lamb, to kill it, and to put it on the, on the blood of your doorpost, and, and to eat things in a certain manner, and God had a specific way that he wanted the people uh, to do things. And those people who, who abided by these things, uh, those people, God saved the firstborn of their house. And so uh, by God's sovereign plan after that, uh, because, of, because of what God had done to the people of Egypt, Pharaoh lets the people go. And not only lets the people go, but lets them go with haste. He says, look, go, get out of here, leave this place immediately. And we can just see more and more evidence that God's hand is on the people of Israel as, as they're leaving Egypt and as they're going in, into the Exodus. So God is, is very strategic in the way that he's going to lead his people. So the first thing that he does is instead of leading them to the land of the Philistines, which would be a time of war where, where Israel would have to immediately fight in war, 
God said, lest they turn back and want to go back to Egypt instead of fighting in a war, I'll send them a different direction. So he leads them to the wilderness near the, near the Red Sea. And so then he sends his physical manifestation of himself, this, this pillar of, of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. And he sends, the, he sends the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire to guide the Israelites. The pillar of cloud would be to shade them from the sun during the day and also to show them exactly where they needed to go. And then also uh, the pillar of fire would be to light up the night and to give them the guidance that they needed to be able to, to, be able to move forward and to tell them exactly where to go even during the darkest of nights. And so that's where the that's where the Israelites are at this point. They're being led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire uh, to the place that God has promised them. And so uh, that's where we are when we pick up into the text today in, in Exodus chapter 14. And so before we read that, I just want to uh, pray really quickly over the, over the word. God, I, I thank you that, that you've allowed us to be able to hear your word today, that even through uh, difficult times, around here, even through coronavirus scares and, and things that are going on, Lord, we are able to gather as a group of, of people to worship you and to praise you. And so, God, we're, we're thankful for that. Lord, I pray that, that as we open your word and as we read it today, that you would, that you would bring life to it. That, Lord, that you, would, that you would show us the goodness of your word and the, and the goodness of your grace uh, through the story of the Exodus, through the story of the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, Father, you are glorious, and I pray that through this text that we would see that. You are mighty in power, you are glorious, and you are good to your people. Father, today as we read this text, would we put away the the tendency that we have to consider this almost as mythology or a mythological thing, but Lord, would we see this as something historical that actually happened where, where you showed up and you did something amazing? Father, would we be struck by that today? And would you allow us to be able to understand your word and understand what's, what's going on within the scripture? Lord, help me to preach uh, the gospel through this, and um, Lord, would you allow me to be able to share truth today? We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we're going to start, uh, we'll, we'll see three kind of main things going throughout here. We'll see God's pre-appointed purposes, God's work in salvation, and then the praise of God's people. And so those are the, the three, I guess, big themes that we'll see today. And we'll start with uh, God's pre-appointed purposes. We'll read starting in Exodus chapter 14, uh, verse 1. Uh, again, that's Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. We'll go through verse 9. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt told, was told that the people had fled, 
the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pihirath in front of Baal Zephon. So God gives them this command immediately, right? He says, turn back. So Israel is heading down the sea. You would think, if, if I had a map up here, I should have a map up here, but they're heading in a southeastern direction, uh, heading, getting closer to or, or along the Red Sea. And then God just gives them this command to turn back and to go back the direction that they had come from. And so why would, why would God do that? Why would, why would he instruct them to turn back? They're, uh, they're probably still, remember, they're probably still in Egyptian territory at this point. So they're out, of, they're out of Pharaoh's sight in the mainland in Egypt, but they're still in Egyptian territory. So people probably have their eyes on them at this point. And so when a big group of people is moving in one direction and then turns around and goes back into another direction, it makes it seem like they're confused or they're lost or there's some type of confusion. And so that's what the Lord has told Israel to do. They have the wilderness on one side of them. They have the sea on the other side of them. And so they, they're trapped. That's what, that's what the Lord wants the people of Egypt to think that the Israelites are doing. And so at the same time, God is also hardening the heart of Pharaoh. We see that. He hardens Pharaoh's heart again. And apparently it's hard enough that Pharaoh forgets about how terrible all these plagues were that just happened. All of these terrible things that had happened. And he wants to pursue the Israelites. Or maybe he just thinks that God is like all of the gods that he worships. That, the, that Yahweh, the, the one true God, is like all the gods he worships. That at some point they may be manifesting with them. They may be with them. But, but then at some point they leave. Maybe he thought that God left the Israelites at this point and now he can pursue them and get them back. And so either way, what Pharaoh's dealing with right now is that he's got to answer some pretty, some pretty important economic questions uh, that are going on in, in Egypt right now. First of all, how are we going to get all this work done without our slaves? We've had these slaves for 400 years. How are we going to get the work done that they were doing before with no slaves, with, with no Israelites anymore? And, and second of all, the thing they were concerned about at the beginning of Exodus was what if they join forces with some of our neighbors? What if they go to some of the neighboring countries around us, join forces with them, and wage war on us? So these are some major things that Pharaoh has to, has to think about. And so what he does, the way he responds, based on the hardness of his heart, is that he gathers the greatest physical army of that time. The, the Egyptians were one of the greatest armies of that time. He gathers the horses, the chariots, the horsemen, and the army, and he sends them over to the Israelites. He sends them to take over the Israelites. And so why is all of this going down? Why is this happening the way that it that it did? Why did God turn back the Israelites from their initial path? Why, you know, why did God work through Pharaoh and Egypt's mind and emotions to harden their hearts? We see it in verse 4. God tells Moses, he said, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart 
and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This is important. It's going to carry out throughout, the, throughout our text today. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. How that's going to happen, God hasn't really revealed that to his people yet. He hasn't, we don't see that at this point. But we know that God is working out his purposes here, and he works out his purposes in our own lives the same way, primarily for his own glory. God is seeking his own glory right here. And this, this may land on you kind of weird if you've never heard this. Like if, if you haven't heard this before, that God is seeking after his own glory. Are all of the things that are about to happen in this narrative solely so that God can receive glory? Like is that, that maybe you're asking yourself that question. Does, does God really need glory from Pharaoh and from the Egyptians and from the Israelites? Does he need that? Does he need it? No. God does not need anything. Acts chapter 17 verse 24 says that he doesn't need anything. In fact, he is the one that gives everything. So no, God does not need anything from us. He doesn't, he doesn't need anything from us. But considering that he doesn't need anything, will he still demand the glory that is rightfully his? He deserves the glory, right? Will he demand that glory that's his? You bet he will. He absolutely will. In Isaiah 48, uh, verses 9 through 11, God kind of uh, spells this out very clearly. He says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will not share his glory with anyone else. We exist to glorify God in all that we do, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because there is no one more deserving of our praise than God. There is no one more deserving of our praise. And so God will receive the glory that's due to him by one final act on the Egyptians. One final thing that we see that he does to the Egyptians today. And so let's see what the people of Israel are doing right now. Uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. Starting in verse 10, going to verse 18. It says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord 
when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So the Israelites, they see the Egyptians approaching, right? They see them, they see them coming up and, and, and getting closer to them because, you know, they got chariots. The, the Israelites are on feet. The Egyptians are coming with chariots. So uh, even if they got a good head start, uh, it's probably, they're probably going to catch up pretty quickly. Um, and so they feared, right? They feared greatly. And remember, we, when, we're, when we're looking at this story, we are experiencing these events knowing the end result, knowing that God is going to part the sea, knowing that there's going to be this great salvation. But if you put yourself in their shoes, yes, God has just delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They've seen all the plagues that have gone on. They've seen all the stuff going on. But they're in a difficult situation right now. They are blocked in on all sides. They're trapped on all sides with their, with their backs to the sea. The strongest army in the world, the strongest army that is, that is there at this time is approaching, and the Egyptians have this major motivation to try to get them back. So the people are scared, right? They're fearing for their lives. But we can see some progress. We can see some project, progress in the Israelites, because in their fear, they immediately cry out to the Lord. That's what it says. In their fear, they cry out to the Lord. Can we honestly say that we do that? We're in a, we're in a time right now where people are experiencing lots of fear, where fear is gripping the hearts of lots of individuals across the world. In these times, in these difficult situations, do we cry out to God first? Or do we take to social media? Do we do other things I don't know. That's something that we need to ask ourselves, and that's something that I, I get convicted about when I think about it. But then immediately afterwards, we see this snarky response that they have toward Moses, this kind of strange response that they have. Look, Moses, were there no graves in Israel, I mean, in Egypt? Were there no graves in Egypt for you to bury us in? Is that why you've taken us here? Remember when we said, leave us alone so that we could serve the Egyptians? Remember when we said that? And you still tried to take us out of here? And if I'm Moses right now, I'm thinking, wait. I don't remember any of y'all fools saying this when you didn't have any straw to work with and you're having to do double the workload. I don't remember any of y'all saying this when you're getting oppressed. But now that we're out in the wilderness, hindsight looks like 2020. You know, everything, everything in your past looks so much better now that we're in this situation. That's if I'm Moses. That's what I'm going to say. But Moses instead has a much better response. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation that the Lord is going to give today. He is going to work that out for you today. That's what Moses says. This is not a pep talk of any sort. This is not anything to do with a pep talk. This is prophecy. If this were a pep talk, Moses would be preparing his people to fight. He would be training them up and getting them ready, hyping them up to be able to fight. But instead, he literally tells them not to fear and to stand there and to watch. Watch what the Lord is going to do. Wait for further instructions. That's what he says. He even says that the Lord is going to fight for them. All they need to do is literally be silent, and the Lord will fight for them. The Lord will do the rest. And all this is done so that the Egyptians would know that Yahweh, the one true God, the God that the Israelites worship, 
is the one true God, that he would receive the glory that he deserves, that he would receive the, the power that is due his name, that, he would, that people would know him and know who he is. And so then the Lord fulfills his promise to Israel. And we're going to hear this from two accounts today. We'll hear from one from a chronological or historical account that Moses gives. He's about to give that in the, next, in the next section of Scripture that we see. And then we'll see a musical or poetic account. That's what Amber uh, read to us earlier. Uh, it's kind of this musical account where Moses uh, composes a song to, to God in response to what, to what just happened. And so we'll read the chronological account first uh, in Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 19. It says, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots of the horsemen and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. None of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So this pillar of cloud, that, or the angel of God that we see in this text, the same, that's the same thing, by the way. Those can be used interchangeably. Uh, God's manifestation of himself as, as this visu, visual evidence to the Israelites that he is there with them. Uh, this pillar of cloud that was once, that once had the role of pointing them in the direction that they needed to go of leading them and guiding them now moves behind them. And so literally God is, is placing a wall of darkness between them, between the, the Israelites who are trying to escape from the Egyptians and the Egyptians. God places a wall of darkness between them. And so then uh, it allows the Israelites to get their stuff together to kind of to kind of combine all of their things and get ready to leave. And so then we know what the Lord is going to do next after that, right? Moses stretches out his staff and this strong east wind blows and the waters of the deep sea split. And Israel walks through the sea on dry ground. What 
an amazing story. As, as kind of elementary and ridiculous as this sounds, as kind of crazy as this sounds, please try to remember that this actually happened. This was something that actually took place. Seriously, I, I have to check my heart and my mind sometimes. I have to pray about this when I'm reading Scripture because sometimes I want to point to it like it's, like it's some type of mythology or something that you know, is, a, is a good story but not necessarily true. But this is totally true. These are actual events that occurred in history. These are real people with real fear, real implications, real casualties of war, and a real God who is, who is in control of everything that is going on in this situation. He is in control. And so then God draws them in, right? He draws the Egyptians in. And because of the hardness of their hearts and what was on the line for them as far as economically, the Egyptians follow the Israelites into the sea. They move into the sea. And so then God starts to, to close the trap, right? He clogs the wheels of the chariots, of all the chariots that are approaching them, he slows them down just enough to be able to keep their distance from the Israelites, and he makes it really difficult on them. And at this time, they're starting to notice what's going on. They're starting to realize what's about to happen. All until the time is right. When the chariots of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea were now taken over in the sea, and God closes the trap. God closes the sea on them. Moses stretches out his hands again, and the water returns to normal. The water returns to where it was before. In this, God has provided salvation. God has destroyed the Egyptians. And so I believe that, uh, that through this, we learn much about the purposes of Moses passing down this story by what comes next by the, the summary statement that comes next in the next few verses in Exodus chapter 14, uh, starting uh, in verse 28. We'll read that again. It says, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So what we get to see from this text, what, what we see in the, in the main theme of this text is, is kind of like Joey said last week. God's flexing. He is clearly communicating that there is no other God like him. There is no other God like him. The Egyptians fell by the mighty hand of the one true God, Yahweh, because they are weak in comparison. God is strong and they are weak. The strongest army in the world, the most supreme fighting force that was around at that time, with the breath of God's nostrils, as we'll see in a minute, he just destroys them. He wipes them out. God is the supreme creator and the ruler of earth who sits enthroned above the earth, who Isaiah would tell us he's sitting enthroned above the earth and we are just grasshoppers. We are nothing. 
They spent all these time, the Egyptians have spent all this time and resources to, to build up this massive army and to do all of these things, and the Lord wipes them out whenever he pleases. And he does that for the salvation of Israel. And God wasn't just flexing for the Egyptians to be able to see his glory. He didn't just want them to see his glory, more so for his own people to see him in all of his majesty, to see all of his glory, to see all the things that God was doing for them. Scripture says Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And then it brought about two responses in them. The first response, fear. The natural response that we see throughout Scripture when, when the Israelites encounter Yahweh, when they encounter the true God. This is reverence and this is all, but don't forget that this fear is actually fear. They are afraid. They are very much afraid of the Lord and what he can do at this point. But then also, it brings about belief in their hearts. They start to believe that the Lord is, is true to his promises. That he will do the things that he said he will do. That he will come through when he says that he will come through for them. They start to believe the things that, that Moses said to them. Not that they won't continuously disobey, as we see going on throughout Scripture, that they won't continuously jump into things and, and disobey him throughout the rest of Exodus, for sure, and throughout the rest of Scripture, really. But nevertheless, the Lord is delivering a people for his name. He is purchasing a people for his name's sake. And they are learning that they can trust him through this. They're learning that, that they can trust that he is good and that he cares for them. And so then we see the praises of God's people, right? Amber read this earlier, so I'm not going to read through the entire section again, but we'll go through some of the main, uh, some of the main keys, some of the main things that we see through, these, uh, through this song of praise. Remember, the song was composed by Moses. Moses wrote it, and it was sung to the Lord. And this is the heart, kind of the heartbeat of Israel right now, coming out of the uh, of this salvation, of this crossing of the Red Sea. This is their heartbeat and their overflow of gratitude toward the Lord. And so they give us insight. Uh, this, this passage gives us a little bit more insight as to who God is and, to, and as to what he was doing through saving them um, by letting them go through the sea. So let's dive in. Uh, we'll see what the Israelites sing about God, uh, the promises that God continues through the Israelites, and then God's uh, glory echoing even farther than just Egypt and Israel. So his glory spreading farther throughout the other nations of the land. So what do the Israelites sing about? We'll kind of walk through this quickly. Uh, you can try to follow along if you want to, but I'm going to be going through this pretty quickly. Uh, verse 2, Moses says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He is proclaiming that man's strength is not sufficient to accomplish anything, but with God, absolutely nothing is impossible. With man's strength, nothing can be accomplished, but with God, nothing is impossible. That's what we see here. In verse 2, he says, He has become my salvation. Quite literally, God has brought them out of the hands of their oppressors. He has saved them through this situation. And as David will say later in, in Psalm chapter 62, as we carry on through the Old Testament, he says, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Israel ran to him when they were in a difficult situation and God came through. 
Verse 2 again, he says, this is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. So in the same way that we saw Moses' forefather Jacob uh, meet with God at Bethel when Jacob experienced God in a, in a vision, in the same way that Moses experienced God for himself, Yahweh himself, at the burning bush, now the people of Israel have had an experience where they can say that God is not only a great God, that he is not only a good God that cares for them, but he is their God. He is their God. And this is important. He's the God that's going to carry out this special kind of love for the Israelites that even when they stray away from him, when they run away from him, he's going to continue to love them and to pursue them with this, with this unusual love throughout the remainder of Scripture. They can know that God is their God personally. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war or a warrior. This is laying down the groundwork for the rest of the Old Testament. Israel is not the largest of peoples. I think it said there, was, there were 400,000 men, not the largest of nations. They will need to have the ability to fight, to be able to get to the, to the place where God wants them to be, to be able to get to the promised land. They will need the ability to fight for the things that they're doing. And just as we saw today, the rest of the Old Testament is proof that God is going to fight for his people. He's going to fight for his people, and that's so that he can receive glory and so that those people can, so that the, the things that those people do can be good. God's glory is of the utmost. Verse 3, he also says, the Lord is his name. Again, the proper name of God, Yahweh. When they would sing about Yahweh, they would sing specifically toward him so that this distinguishes from any other gods. This doesn't allow anyone else to be confused or to try to attribute some of these attributes to another god because he is the one true god. Those other gods are weak and lifeless in comparison to him. He is powerful and strong. He is the one true god. In verse 6, it says God's right hand is glorious in power and that it shatters the enemies. God is powerful. He will always be victorious in everything that he does. He will not fail. God will not fail. That's what we need to know today. He will never fail. Verse 7 says another very important thing. It says, In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. So the fact that God is a, is a good and sovereign ruler that loves his people, that fact is not opposed to the fact that God hates and will destroy evil. It's not that God isn't patient, right? God was patient even with the Egyptians. For 460 years, he allowed the people of Israel to be enslaved to the Egyptians. God was patient with the Egyptians. But the fact that God destroys evil is inevitable. He is a good God. And him being a good God, him being a good sovereign ruler over us, includes the fact that he will display his justice, that he will destroy evil. God's justice is one of the most frightening attributes for us, one of the most frightening things that we can see as believers. But we can also rest assured that unrepentant evil will not go unjudged. And that's something that we can 
hope in, and that's something that we can see. But many times we're tempted, especially especially in our current society, especially in the current way that things are going, to soften our language when it comes to God's judgment, to try to not talk about that as much or to not think about that as much. But this is one of God's attributes that cannot be isolated. It cannot be removed from him. That is part of who God is. God is good all the time. And part of that goodness is that he rightfully judges evil and he will punish and ultimately put to death evildoers. So we have to know that today when we, when we talk about God, when we see who God is. Verse 11, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Can you catch the theme here? Can you catch the thing that's continuing to carry out throughout this scripture? When we see a repeated theme, we need, to, we need to listen to that. He drives home the fact, Moses drives home the fact right here that God is unique. There is no one like him. The answer to all of these questions, who is like you, O Lord, who is majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, is no one. No one is like him. In Hebrew, uh, when it says among the gods, in, in, in the Hebrew language, the gods would not only refer to, to foreign gods, to, to those that the Egyptians were worshiping, but also to angelic beings, to authorities, to powers. So, they are saying, so he's saying here that God is separated from all those. God is greater than all of those. There is no one like our God. And this is what the Israelites attribute to God. These are the things that, that the Israelites say about God. But how can we see God relating to the Israelites from this passage? How do we see God relating to them? And so we see the promises of God continuing through the Israelites next, right? We see in verse 13, it says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And in verse 17, it talks about how God has purchased his people and how he's going to bring them in and plant them on his own mountain. These are the things that, that God is telling his people. These are the things that God is talking about with his people. Two things. Two things we can see from this. First of all, just like we saw earlier, God is establishing a people. He's creating a people, a nation, purchased by him, that though they are weak and small, that they, though they are basically insignificant compared to the rest of the world, he is going to show his mighty power through them. That's the first thing, he's establishing a people. But also, he's establishing a place. We see that through the scripture here. The Lord will fulfill his promises to bring them to the land that he has given them. He will continue to give them that. In fact, he's already in the process of doing it. Through the, throughout the process of the Old Testament, through what we see today, God is bringing his people out of slavery, and later in Exodus, he's going to establish his covenant and his law with, the, with his people. And then God, later on through the Old Testament, is going to establish his people in the promised land, the, the land that he has given to them specifically, and he will dwell there with them. And so we see this constant theme that we've seen thus far going throughout our study of the Bible. God has made his promises to Israel. He has promised these things to Israel, and he has kept every promise that he has ever made. He is faithful. Church, listen, he is faithful to fulfill his promises today. And because God is going to fulfill his promises to establish his people, the nations, the others that oppose him should be very afraid. 
And that's the rest of what we see in the uh, scripture here. Verses 14 through 16, it says, The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. So through this act of salvation, God will not only be feared by the Egyptians and by the Israelites, but also by the neighboring nations, everyone in Israel's path. These nations mentioned here, Philistia, Edom, Moab, and Canaan, are the nations in which Israel would eventually conquer to establish the land that God has set up for them, to establish the land that God's going to place for them. And again, the Lord shows his power and his might by continuing to fight for Israel. He will continue to fight for Israel, and he will continue to bring glory to his name, even through Israel's weakness and even through the unbelief that they have, as, we see, as we're going to see going forward. And what's even more amazing than all of this when we look back at this amazing narrative where we see God literally parting a sea and allowing the people to go through on dry land is that this is not even the greatest act of might and power that God has ever shown this is not even the greatest in fact this simultaneously this simultaneous work of of salvation and of destruction is only a shadow it's only a shadow that is pointing to what would come from mankind, to the greatest thing that would ever come from mankind. God had a much greater picture in mind where he would establish a new people, a new people for the glory of his name. This group would not center around one particular place or one particular nationality. It wouldn't center around particularly Israel, but he would establish a new people that God purchased from all nations. And salvation would not just look like deliverance from an unlikely circumstance, but God would deliver us from something much greater than the Egyptian army. God would deliver us from something much greater than anything that Pharaoh could do. He would deliver us from our bondage to sin and from our immediate and imminent spiritual death. In this new salvation that God brings about, God would take aim at death itself and will destroy the evil one. God will rid him of his power over the earth for good. And this salvation comes through the finished work of God's only son, Jesus Christ. That's where this salvation comes through. That's what the exodus, that's what the crossing of the Red Sea is pointing to, a greater salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, through his redemption. Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He was sacrificed in our place for our sin on the cross. And he was resurrected in victory, in triumphant victory over sin and over death. And that was for us. And so, that those, and so for those of us that believe in him today, for those of us that would consider ourselves believers in this room, we have been forgiven of our sins. And just as the Israelites we're saved from the mighty hands of the Egyptians. We have been saved from the pangs of death, from the imminent destruction that comes for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. We have been saved from that. 
And just as the Israelites were purchased by God, like it says in the passage, and they were brought out of slavery, those of us who believe, according to Acts chapter 20, have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has purchased us. We are no longer slaves to sin, as Paul would say, but we are slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to God and his righteousness. And just as God has promised to bring the Israelites to a place to where they would dwell with him, which would eventually be Jerusalem, just as he has promised those things for them, he promises that through Jesus Christ that we have obtained eternal life, that we can dwell with him in heaven for all of our days. And until that day comes, we have been sealed with his Holy Spirit. We have been given his Holy Spirit who lives in us and guides us in all that we do. Praise God for that salvation this morning. Praise God for what he has done. So in the same way that the people rejoiced and, and praised the Lord for delivering them, we have a means of rejoicing today because we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that comes through Jesus Christ and his redemption, through him ridding us and, and, and allowing us to get away from our sin that we're not in bondage to sin and slavery anymore, but that we can enjoy eternal life through Him. And we can joyfully proclaim 1 Corinthians 15 that says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We can experience God's holiness as His Word sanctifies us and shapes our minds from wanting to receive glory for ourselves and he shapes our minds into actually wanting to give him glory, the glory that he deserves. And so Christians, let us place our hope in Christ today. In the difficult situations that we see around us, in the, in the panic and the, the early onset of this coronavirus, we don't really know what's going to happen next. But we know the one who knows what's going to happen next. The Lord is is at work. The Lord will do what he has promised and the Lord is going to continue to work through this situation. And so I would also want to address uh, anyone who may not believe in Jesus Christ in the room today. I don't want to assume that everyone in here is believers. And so if, if you're someone who would say that, that you don't believe in Jesus Christ, that you, that you haven't trusted in him for salvation, that, that your hope doesn't lie in him, I would urge you today to receive that salvation. I would urge you to see him for who he truly is. That you would know that he, that he came to forgive you of your sins and to care for you and to love you in a way that you can't love yourself, in a way that no one on this earth can love you. I would pray that today, as you heard this message, that you, would, that you would repent, that you would turn from your sins, and that you would trust in the one who has the power to save you and who will save you. And as we think about that today, uh, let me pray and close this out. Father, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've preserved your word for us. Uh, so that we may know you, so that we may experience your, your goodness and your grace. And God, also the wrath that you have 
over evil. Lord, would we, would we deal with your word today and throughout this week? And when we allow it to shape us, Lord, most importantly, will we trust in Jesus Christ this week? Will we trust in the one who has effectively once and for all removed the debt that we had, removed our sin and our shame, and replaced it with righteousness? Father, I, I thank you that today as we sit in a, in a room full of people that we are able to gather corporately and to worship you because you are deserving of that glory. You deserve to receive all of our glory. And Lord, we pray that the things that we're doing in our lives that don't give you glory, that we would turn those things, that we would take those things and put those things aside and think about how we may trust in you more and give you glory. Father, our hope is not in anything apart from you. And Lord, I pray that if, if our hope is in something else, if we are trusting in something else, that you would point us back to yourself. Lord, let us worship you well today. We praise you and thank you for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name.